like generally states are not uh they don't govern in the interest of the people um i think under capitalism right most states are very much captured by private interests and private entities like in particular uh egregious example is the united states um and how much i mean like bribery is just straight up legal we just call it lobbying like as leftists i think if you are on the more radical side, at least, like you are in many ways and in many points in history would be considered a criminal. And you have to find ways to like protect yourself and your organization from like what those damages could be. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Artifact 56. I am joined today by Josh Davila. He's the author of Blockchain radicals normally i would pick it up and show you the title but i have it on my kindle i just finished reading the book sometime well he has a copy i'll do it for you <laughs> yeah very nice so um i i finished it last night and i i wanted to talk about uh this topic simply because especially with uh the last uh, cryptocurrency cycle uh 2021 into early 2022 it, it was kind of obvious that, first of all, this is something that is here to stay. But secondarily, me being a, a pretty left wing, it's obvious to me, just like witnessing the crypto Twitter space. I don't know if it's just kind of like a selection bias or whatnot, but it's pretty obvious that crypto has been more or less taken over by right wingers, at least culturally, at least those that are highly visible. Uh, it tends to uh, break fairly right wing, and we could talk about why that is, but overwhelmingly it just seems to me like well if this is something that's here to stay uh as a leftist you should sort of do something to get involved you shouldn't allow it to be just kind of hijacked by uh, ideas that you disagree with uh there's maybe some personalities that we could uh, talk about as as this show goes on but the point is i think if you sort of understand what blockchain is specifically uh what bitcoin is uh what nfts are People come away with the understanding that, you know, there's no way that this thing can go away. The cat is out of the bag. Uh, the way uh, all this functions is out of the bag. So we're going to have to deal with it in some way. And we could either allow right-wingers to take control or we could sort of try to, like, establish a, a more kind of coherent political program uh, on top of all this. And maybe we could begin with some recent news. So yesterday, uh, there was the approval of the Bitcoin ETF in the United States. And this is something that's been kind of in the works for a very long time. There's been all these uh, ETF denials that, um, you know, I don't follow exactly the legal arguments, but it does seem to me that um, the the legal arguments from the beginning were kind of shaky for, for denying an ETF. So people were expecting this for almost a decade at this point. It finally passed. And this is an inflection point uh, for crypto. At the very least, it just kind of legit legitimizes maybe not some of the narratives, but at the very least, it legitimizes the fact that, again, this thing exists and now uh, other kinds of players that maybe would not be involved, now they're going to be getting involved. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe we could start with the question of what, what do you think this is going to do long term for uh, cryptocurrency, uh, blockchain? Um, do you think this is going to have some sort of disciplining effect on Bitcoin, right? If Bitcoin has any kind of money properties, eventually it's going to have to be less volatile. Maybe this is a, a disciplining factor that would help bring this about. So what what is your response to the approval and does it have any relevance to leftists working in this space? Yeah, sure. Um, well, 
Yeah, first, thanks for for having me. Um, like you mentioned, my name is Josh Davila. Uh, I run a blog and a podcast called The Blockchain Socialist, and I've been kind of following the crypto space from a left-wing point of view for the past uh, about four years. Um, and the book came out this past August through Peter Books, based in the UK. But yeah, the, the the news was not so surprising in that the past at least couple of months, at least we can say like people were like very, the, the general sentiment was like very positive and like pretty sure that this was going to happen anyways, even though there was, you know, a certain rhetoric from, I believe like Gary Gensler and, and other uh, types of people. Jamie Dimon, of course, is like usually on, on the circuit saying negative things about Bitcoin. Um, but I think generally like the creation of the ETF is not so surprising and it's not, um, it's not as like, if you, if you want to look at crypto from like a more radical lens, from a more political lens, like it's uh, basically looks, it is basically a form of co-optation, I guess I could say, um, in that Bitcoin has, is like, and has already been in the process of being subsumed into kind of like the status quo of financial institutions, which is very contradictory if you think about kind of the, let's say the more idealistic uh, Bitcoiners who think that Bitcoin really should be like completely separate from, you know, the existing financial system and create its own thing where people now have like more sovereignty or whatever arguments it is that they use. Um, but I think it shows that this, uh, you know, in, in like very crude dialectics, if you really have like the uh, the thesis of financial institutions, the antithesis was supposed to be uh, Bitcoin. But I think what we've seen is kind of like this synthesis of both of these two together, where now um, Bitcoin is like sort of in the process of being subsumed into these financial institutions. So, I mean, I think this mostly just shows that, like you mentioned earlier, that it's probably going to stay whether you like it or not, um, as things exist. I'm not saying that that means that you should go and buy Bitcoin because of the ETF. I'm not someone to uh, predict price or anything like that. But uh, I think the 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 idea in the past that, you know, in the past people have kind of like expressive, like that we need to make crypto completely illegal and completely ban it or whatever, seems unlikely, at least in like the context of the US. Yeah, one ironic uh, portion to all of this is uh, there's definitely a contingent of, uh, you know, crypto activists and whatnot that believe that the ETF is is bad, right? I mean, beyond like questions mm -hmm. of price, there's like all these theories about like, is it gonna be good for price, bad for price? Here's ways there's positive, ways there's negative, I mean, whatever. But beyond that, uh, the idea that um, because now there's all these like big players involved and that they're legitimate crypto in this way, it's a violation of crypto ethos. The way that I always viewed mm -hmm. it is, well, if Bitcoin is gonna have some sort of like long-term uh, use case, uh, it's gonna have to be, you know, it's going to have to be like, even if we sort of assume that Bitcoin has a, a digital gold narrative and this is the way that it's going to play out in the long term, in the same way that if like, you know, like if you were to chart out gold going back, let's say, you know, from its discovery up until now, early on in its history, definitely the chart would have looked like this, right? Uh, maybe upon discovery, people are like, well, you know, this, you know, this beautiful object, obviously it's going to be worth a lot. We're going to treat as such. And then maybe... Uh, two months later, there's a cyclical famine that affects everybody. And now gold is worth nothing. The goats are worth much more than gold. And this kind of, you know, goes back and forth until society sort of disciplines itself and famines become maybe like uh, less prominent. 
uh, gold could sort of, you know, uh, insinuate itself in, in other ways in markets and eventually just kind of stabilizes and more or less tracks inflation over the long term. That doesn't mean that, you know, anytime there's an inflation hike, it's going to uh, immediately shoot up like but over the long term, it tends to track it. And if Bitcoin is going to have any kind of functionality like that, it probably would need an ETF just for that disciplining factor, right? So at the very beginning, I think just kind of like intellectually, the kinds of, you know, uh, uh, designs uh, that are put upon Bitcoin and the plans that people have for it, from the very beginning, there's this kind of disconnect between how society actually functions. You know, it was never going to be banned, right? This is the the odd thing. Like, it, it, like maybe certain things might be banned, maybe certain ways of doing crypto could be banned, but like it was never going to be banned um, and, and, uh, those that expect, and like, if you, if you were sort of like assuming that it was going to be banned, it's going to be us against the state. Um, you're not going to, you're not going to win that conflict, right? If you have essentially, uh, uh, you know, if you're like protecting, you know, little more uh, than amounts to tokens, right? The state is always going to win out. And ultimately, uh, maybe we could just talk about like Bitcoin in general a little bit, but like the way that I view it is it's going to be something that probably coexists. Uh, I'm not somebody that at all believes in things like a debt crisis or spending too much. But the fact is, like, you could, like, if you live, you know, if you're a left winger in any kind of nation state in the world, uh, you will definitely find ways in which spending is done incorrectly. Like, that, that could be anything like slush funds and funding genocides in Palestine, or it could be like whatever. Um, it could be just a misuse of funds in other ways. Uh, if that happens, you know that there is some kind of debasement going on. And if Bitcoin is going to be something that potentially protects you against these worst case scenarios, you know, that in and of itself, I think, is a sufficient reason for its existence. And it all it tends to like default to, you know, fewer rather than more um, regulations, because, I mean, just the existence of like a Bitcoin wallet probably like is a violation of some sort of laws, but they're, they're still not going to ban that. Uh, and instead, there's going to be workarounds. And I think that kind of puts pro uh, not privacy first, but at least you know, a some level of a personal accountability first in a way where maybe the state can't get so easily involved. So um, like, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin in general? Is it dead as a leftist project? Because I mean, it is uh, fairly, you know, concentrated wealth at this point. Um, or Because in your book, you barely talk about Bitcoin. So have you just totally, you know, tossed it aside as a relevant to leftism? Yeah, so I mean, definitely most of my, the kind of like, sections where i talk about bitcoin is mostly at the beginning just because paying homage to the like first cryptocurrency that existed and it's worth explaining that one first before before getting to the other ones because it's the most simple one as well but i mean in general yeah i would say that if you are on the left and you're thinking about using crypto as a tool for some sort of thing that you want to do most likely uh the like a different cryptocurrency will be more interesting than bitcoin um, it could be maybe you're in a situation where Bitcoin is like really the only one you can use and that makes sense for that specific context. But I really think it's context specific, but I'm willing to bet that, you know, the vast majority of cases you can use something else besides Bitcoin that might be more um, desirable uh, than Bitcoin. So, I mean, I think there is a chance the the main kind of, you know, examples or use cases that I kind of land out in the book are these, uh, I mean, what happened in the past already with WikiLeaks where they had in 2010, 2011, had released the Cablegate papers where they showed all these um, war crimes being committed by the US and its allies in the Middle East. Uh, and then they had their 
like their financial services blocked off. So they had like economic sanctions um, financial sanctions thrusted upon them. They couldn't access a lot of their money in different places, um, but they had ex started accepting Bitcoin as a way to um, receive donations. And uh, that was like the first time that Bitcoin had this like clear use case, like people were able to send Bitcoin, nobody could stop it. Um, and then they were able to use that Bitcoin to fund their their infrastructure. And that turned out to be like a wildly successful bet that they made. Even though, like at the time, Satoshi Nakamoto, like one of his last messages was telling uh, WikiLeaks, like, don't do that <laughs> for, some, for whatever reason. Um, he said Bitcoin wasn't ready, but they did it anyways, and it ended up being uh, a good a good bet. Um, so I think in these situations of economic uh, and financial sanctions, if those are thrusted upon you, or if that's a threat of that being thrusted upon you, then cryptocurrency generally is like something that can be useful. Um, whether Bitcoin is better for that than other ones, I'm a little bit skeptical, but maybe you're in a country where, I don't know, for some reason, the infrastructure for Bitcoin is a whole lot better than like Ethereum, for example, or something like that. Um, but I would say generally, like it is pretty, um, like I don't find much, like I spend not so much time focusing on Bitcoin for, for my own podcast or my own writing, just because I do feel that it is quite captured at this point. And it's hard for me to to see any wiggle room for really where there is like radical left-wing potential there, um, except in like very, you know, niche circumstances. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, uh, there's there's a little bit of a, a value neutral uh, element to Bitcoin uh, left. Uh, again, like alluding to the idea of whether you're, um, you know, it's kind of like a, a blank slate in some ways where, uh, yes, it's it's been, uh, in terms of like culture, at least, uh, captured very much uh, by right-wing ideology. But at the same time, it is inherently value neutral in the sense that you could be a left-winger who believes that we are uh, spending money incorrectly. And you would use the examples that I cited, such as you're funding a genocide in Palestine. You are exacerbating a, a war in Ukraine that shouldn't have happened in the first place. You are, you know, whatever, right? You're not uh, spending enough on the social safety net. Or you could be a right winger who, you know, might be anti-war uh, in some respects, but also doesn't want a social safety net. Um, so it's mm -hmm. value neutral in that sense. And in both those scenarios, like you could imagine a situation where uh, there is like a, some sort of monetary debasement, which goes on. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin is going to be uh, the thing that maybe uh, helps. Again, this has not been tested out. We we don't have evidence yet that it's behaving this way. My suspicion is long term, it probably will start to behave in such a way. But th that is all theoretical. Uh, what about uh, questions of uh, Bitcoin as money? In your book, you're, you're kind of skeptical of this idea of cryptocurrency. You says it has money-like properties, but it's not really money, right? And perhaps you're using, um, you know, maybe a technical definition of money that people are uh, less aware of. So can you comment a little bit more on that? Yeah, sure. So definitely like the the narrative in the crypto world, in, in Bitcoin world, I would say actually more specifically, oftentimes is that Bitcoin is money and it's the best money out there. It's the best money you can ever have. It's similar to gold and the gold standard. And, you know, all of our problems started whenever, you know, the United States left the gold standard. And now we need to go back and we can show our support uh, for doing that by um, buying Bitcoin. Um, but uh, I think there is this like, um, yeah, kind of big misunderstanding about what money actually is and how how it works in like the Bitcoin community. I think they have like very, very rigid and like almost like too specific of, of idea of what makes money. They think like the idea that you can just, if you believe something is money or if you just like kind of 
use it as money within your circle, therefore makes it money, almost like we're like willing it to be. But I think there's a lot more bigger systemic and institutional factors to take into account whether we want to say something is like really money. Of course, this is always like on a spectrum. So I'm trying to like not completely say that like it's not money and you know it's it's ridiculous for you to say so because there are a lot of like similar properties of course i can send and receive bitcoin in the way same way that i can send and receive money so in like some ways it looks like money um but money has like these like um real characteristics the most common uh or like one way that i like to kind of explain this difference is through um like whenever you want to buy something in Bitcoin, let's say online, like e-commerce, say you're, you know, you're on the dark web and you're buying uh, weed or something like that. Um, the weed, like the object, the commodity you want to buy online is going to be priced in dollars usually. And then it's going to convert that into what that means in Bitcoin. So like every day or however much amount of time, the price is changing depending on the relationship, the, the price of Bitcoin. Uh, related to the actual money, which is dollar. So the thing, what is the thing priced in is what the money is, right? So it would be dollar. So what you're doing when you're like using the dark web, for example, then you are doing what's called a counter trade where you are, you know, trading the Bitcoin in the amount, like equal to the amount of money at that moment and trading it for, you know, the thing that you're buying. And that's like a common, that's like a financial, you know, uh, uh, thing that pe that people do in financial markets all the time they'll they'll trade commodities it's a it's it's almost like barter except where there's a like an imaginary number of money in which that counts so uh, for me uh you know just to conclude is that bitcoin isn't money but that's not a bad thing that in fact it is actually quite good that bitcoin is not money and it is the reason why uh, organizations like WikiLeaks, like SciHub is another one. Um, they're able to use cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin in order to uh, receive donations, to receive money, to, to pay for things because it is not money. So the fact that it cannot be blocked um, mean it, like is in a way it is not it is not money uh, in a in in a digital um, in, in a, through digital platforms, you know. Yeah, I agree with you that um, yeah, I would be kind of uh, uh, hesitant to outright call something like Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency uh, money. But at the same time, uh, the money-like properties are – they're not only there, but they seem to be accelerating in some ways because – I mean, even like for instance, uh, using some of the examples you cite in the book, uh, you have your um, uh, you have your bread token. I believe it's, uh, it's called um, – yeah. Yeah, which which is basically kind of like a chain uh, for uh, you know for like social good, social activism, where basically you uh, you use a, a Dai uh, deposit, which is a stable coin deposit into AV for um, some sort of uh, interest returns. These interest returns are then recycled into causes that one believes in. Uh, there's no actual like uh, immediate financial benefit because the bread token is uh, pegged uh, to the Dai stable coin, which itself is pegged to one dollar. Right, which uh, only very rarely uh, deviates uh, from a dollar, um, and uh, you know that in itself, like we're, we're still kind of like at the stage in, in cryptocurrency where you know the phrase cryptocurrency, like it's kind of critical to what's happening in the sense that everything is still kind of like a pure financialization in, in various ways. You could use it for mm -hmm. different purposes, but it's still financialization. Um, you wrote a blog post uh, about. Uh, uh, during the 2020 uh, eviction crisis, 
um it, it was something along the lines of it's a token uh housing for like for housing for all yeah housing for yeah. all token and even that like in in some senses okay so it would be like a token that would basically i'm not sure if it'd work like a, as an nft or whatever where it's like okay we're the metadata in this NFT indicates that, you know, this is a guy who's a single father, right? Or this is a, a, a woman, this is a couple, right? With two children. And obviously you're going to have different kinds of housing units depending on these uh, different needs. Um, but even that in and of itself, like something like housing, uh, it has uh, a kind of, you know, scarcity uh, attached to it, right? Um, and part of that scarcity would also obviously be the fact that personhood is scarce, right? Human beings are a minority on this planet. You know, we have many more cows than we have people. We have many more bacteria and other animals versus people. So they don't get personhood. We do as, you know, uh, as people, we're entitled to these housing units. That kind of scarcity, that it's still a kind of financialization. Yes, it's more roundabout, but we're still dealing with these kinds of financialization schemes. Like, do, uh, do you imagine a uh, blockchain utility? And we should uh, honestly, uh, after this, just like define blockchain for people that are confused because my audience that probably doesn't really know uh, much about this, but like, uh, do, do you think like crypto is going to get beyond this, um, you know, these models of uh, scarcity, non-scarcity, financialization, different like uh, spectrums of that? Like, like, do you think we're going any, any way other than that direction? Like, are we going to put anything else like, on chain and use it that it's not just um i don't want to say the word profit right but it's like some sort of financialization scheme mm -hmm. whether for good or ill still we're talking about financialization yeah i mean i would say that uh it ha it has happened to a certain extent uh in many ways um like i, I mean you know there uh, although people uh we might talk about it later but like there are nfts for example i mean people buy nfts also not necessarily for wanting to uh, generate a profit, right? You can have, there is definitely a market for NFTs where people are trying to buy a piece of art and then sell it for a profit. Um, but NFTs are not just like crypto art. They're not just like digital image. They're a little bit more complicated and a little bit more, there, there are reasons to like want to use these things um, for non-financialized reasons. I think it's important maybe to, to, to define financialization um, financialization kind of means that uh, you are commoditizing more or marketizing more some type of service or product, uh, which was not done that way before. So I would argue that like, you know, a housing for all token, let's say that I mentioned in the book, that's an anti-financialization scheme, I would argue, because we're not, it's, it's opposing the real estate market or choosing to allocate our housing resources via markets and instead choosing to allocate it based on needs of the community. So it would be like a, an anti-financialization. Um, but I think in general, yes, there is like this trend and need and desire to move away from financialization. Although there is still a very, very strong contingency of people who wants to uh, financialize everything pretty much. Um, but there has been like an increase, for example, in like different types of like new types, new forms of social media that use blockchains that are on chain, um, that I would argue there, it's hard to say whether they're doing more financialization by using on chain kind of functions or that they're making the financialization that's already present in currently existing social media platforms and simply making them visible. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's, there's like 
perhaps a, a debate or conversation between people to to have on that, which just is happening. Um, but yeah, I think in general as well, like we will have to create those applications that are non-financialized and we will have to like take part in using them. Um, it's just like really hard. Uh, I think for a lot of people, whenever um, just kind of like the, the status quo in crypto world, is that is if you want to get a lot of if you need want to get enough money for people to for you to build the infrastructure for that application you have to provide some sort of incentive and that's i think related to just like the general problems of capitalism that we live under yeah i, I mean like in general just uh, uh human beings obviously we work uh, according to incentive structures right it's it's true that these could get very much warped and it's true that uh, many incentives are unjustifiable but still, like we we kind of uh, work on the basis of incentives. Um, so let let's define uh, blockchain. Yeah. So for people that either don't know about it or are skeptical, right, don't quite understand the value proposition. What is your like best top down uh, uh, analysis of what uh, blockchain is outside of uh, Bitcoin? When we say blockchain, we don't uh, just mean Bitcoin. We mean the mm -hmm. technology behind Bitcoin being, uh, I believe, the first uh, blockchain project. So how would you define that for skeptics? Yeah, so blockchain refers to both a data structure, like a very particular data structure, and uh, as well, it alludes to like a kind of infrastructure that upkeeps that data structure. So it's, a, it's essentially a database that is held redundantly. So it's the same kind of uh, entries in a database are being held in multiple places. Um, those places are called are, are computers and they're called peers or nodes or they're, they're even like a, a type of server. Um, but data is held across many different computers and machines and they are constantly sharing data between one another about what is the current state of the database or the ledger, which keeps track of, for example, how much Bitcoin we hold, how much Bitcoin you're sending, you're receiving. Um, uh, and so, uh, in kind of standard practice in creating technological implementations for a lot of applications that we use today, like a lot of big tech products, Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, Twitter, whatever else, we are uh, inside uh, an architecture called a client server model, right? We have uh, the server in the middle, which has all of the data for that application that is owned by, you know, insert giant tech company here, we have clients, which are like our applications on our phone or our web applications. We make requests to that server saying, Hey, I want to post this. Uh, and you send it to the server. It does some sort of checks and then it sends it out to the rest of the clients, right? Um, it has all these processes internal and all of that is owned by a private entity that wants to make profits, that wants to make money. And the thing that it owns is your data. And so it has to make money some way in by owning your data, which is usually in the form of uh, packaging and repackaging uh, different sort of combinations of people's profiles to uh, marketers and people who pay for advertising, right? That's generally how they make their money. Um, in the situation of a blockchain, your the data that you create is technically owned by you in a way that you are able to control uh, yourself without needing an intermediary necessarily for that control. So um, 
you have you use what are called PGP or like um, PGP keys. Like you use a uh, you have an address. So this is like a long string of letters and numbers um, that are that you generate. So that's for you, um, and you are able to share that with people to uh, for them to send you cryptocurrency, for example. Um, and then you also generate a different set of random numbers and letters called a private key that you keep secret and that you use in order to access what is inside your wallet. Um, and so you're not, whereas in the client server model, you have to create an account, right? So you have to say, I'm Josh, this is my email, maybe I live here, this is my phone number, uh, these are my security questions. You have to give all that information to, to the centralized company and they hold it on their servers. And so you don't have to do that. And instead, you simply have to make sure you keep in a very safe spot your private key uh, to access your assets and funds. So it kind of changes. It it moves the responsibility a little bit, but has like a lot of big uh, implications. Um, but so with your private key, uh, you are able to make transactions. You can say, I want to send, you know, I want to send uh, a Bitcoin to to Alex. And that gets sent to the network, which is basically all these computers that I mentioned before that are all checking with one another about the state of the database of the ledger of who has what Bitcoin and how much, for example. Um, and then it takes that request and then it sends it out uh, to the rest of the network. Um, whereas, you know, if you were to take the big tech example, or even if we were to take like the example of of big banks and how the financial institutions work today, we have to go through centralized entities who have a lot of information about us. Um, and so when you send a transaction on a blockchain by usually in, in most blockchains, um, that information is public. So it show, but it shows that, you know, this address, this random strings of numbers and letters is sending Bitcoin to this other random string of numbers and letters. So you have a kind of like pseudo anonymity, uh, in, in that space versus like, you know, Google knowing basically your entire life uh, because they own all of that data. Um, um, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, were you uh, finished or you want to add to that? No, go ahead, you, go ahead. You, you said, you said there's some, um, so like, what are these implications that you mentioned that are not so obvious at first? Like what are, what are the, the, the real implications of this kind of ownership? So the real implications, good question. Um, there's a, so there's a lot of them. So sorry, so kind of like got to summarize to think mm -hmm. about it. Like by you owning that data yourself, you're able to port, like you can move your uh, set of data, like, like you can move yourself to a different kind of service provider. So imagine if rather than like having Twitter, which has, which is one organization that holds all the information and you are kind of like trapped inside of Twitter's walled garden. Imagine instead, rather than thinking in platforms, we can think in protocols, which are, we can think of as like pre-agreed upon rules for how data is used and managed. And then you can create several platforms that aren't walled off, um, using that same protocol. So it's kind of similar to, I don't know if you know, like secure scuttlebutt or Mastodon to some degree, mm -hmm. like kind of federated uh, social medias, but this takes it to, I think a different level where this is also true for, I mean, using many different types of services um, that you would use through a blockchain. So one example or one way that uh, I phrased it in the book uh, later in the book is a uh, platform risk. So 
you maybe as a creator or an artist or even just as a user, you have a risk in choosing a platform that you decide to like spend your time on and to put your work, your art, your content on. Um, and if that platform goes bust, uh, which has happened many times before over the history of the internet, then you lose kind of all, all of your work that was there. And so this compare this to what happened uh, on the Tezos blockchain uh, a couple of years ago, where they had kind of like a, an NFT marketplace that got really big, really fast. Um, the, the guy who created it wasn't expecting it. And at a certain point, he kind of burned out. Um, and so all of the kind of NFTs that were created on the on this platform, it's called Hick et Nunc, um, at one point, because he ended the, the project quite abruptly, there was first like a fear. Everyone thought that they had lost their artwork. But actually, what happened is that the Tezos blockchain was still running, right? It was still had the record of all of the NFTs, who owned it, you know, the metadata about it, all this. Um, and so what ended up happening is people just started creating new front ends uh, that simply showed the data of all of the NFTs that were created on Hick et Nunc before. So then the, there became an explosion of many different platforms that all showed the same information and data. So you can also think of it if you are like a, a developer or something like that or know a little bit about computers, then it's almost like a, a shared backend in which you're able to create many different front ends uh, to show that data. So you imagine like you have Twitter, A, B, C, D, E, like all these different Twitters in which you're all seeing the same data, but it's being presented to you in different ways that maybe like fits that, that current need, for example. That's kind of like a really mm -hmm. big implication in, in my view. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting example for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, uh, the mere fact that uh, what was this in 2021 where uh, that marketplace took off? There is a reason why it happened in 2021, which is you know because it was an extremely frothy market. So yeah. uh, in this kind of a, essentially a game of hot potato, um, you know people are just moving around funds, and it's essentially where who's go who's going to be the first one to drop this potato, right? Who's going to be who's going to be uh, uh, hot with this uh, thing? And um, you know like Ethereum, right, was getting saturated both in terms of like fees uh, because some of those L twos were not really mainstream yet, uh, and uh, just like you know, so we're like looking for some kind of new outlet. You know, Tezos suddenly has this like new marketplace, and every you know everybody moves their money on that because it's gonna you know it's gonna jack up the price. Um, so that just kind of like function, that's how, you know, a lot of cryptocurrency works simply because, you know, every single, like I, I've said this kind of example before, but it's like, if you, if you take a chart uh, of, of Bitcoin or whatever, and you, you know, you drop down to like any, you know, to like any level, whether it's like a four hour daily, weekly, monthly, you're going to have like tons of wicks on every single one of those wicks, somebody is impaled, Right. On every single one of those wicks, someone makes a bunch of money. On every one of those wicks, somebody's like dreams collapse or dreams begin or like whatever. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, it's uh, it's kind of it's you know it's kind of telling how like this this is specifically when it gets expanded in terms of like when people hear about it, right? They are it, it's a very regressive kind of like if 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 blockchain has like long term utility, still we have to be serious about the fact that. It's an extremely regressive tax in many ways, simply by the fact that for it to become popular, people need to get impaled on those wicks, right? Because they're only going to 
worry about it and think about crypto when it's like, oh, the price is going up, right? When price is going down, like everybody knows, it's like people don't really talk about it. This is kind of what's happening, right? People are getting hurt along the way. Secondarily, though, um, you know, these are people involved in crypto, right? They're at least uh they they are at least you know educated enough to know how to use a wallet to know how nfts work and yet they're they're very scared that the nfts disappeared um which just kind of shows that in a baseline even if these people involved they don't really kind of understand what's going on right they don't understand that the value proposition is partly what you said which is um anybody can build on it right i, I think this is one of the key things that i want people to uh take away from this conversation you have uh, open source technology that, you know, if you have like, if you release a token or you release some kind of NFT, if I decide to release an NFT of like one of my poems and I put, you know, an image next to it or whatnot, and I say, you know what, like, I'm not going to work on any utility on this. Like I have to work on my art, but if you want to, you know, fund me directly, this is the best way to do it, whatever, you know, somebody could buy that and say, well, you know, I have this NFT, Alex says I can now share my copyright uh, his copyright uh, uh, with me, you know, if I want to publish this in some other way or whatever, or on chain. So I'm going to build out this like platform because Alex is too busy making art. So I'm going to now build this website that showcases all of our, you know, Alex's artwork from the beginning when he first started publishing online. to like now we could like analyze it. Now there's like some other kind of thing going on and somebody's doing it right? They don't have to take my permission, right? Uh, they all, all they do is build on top of it. Maybe they establish some kind of liquidity pool that it has my NFTs and maybe other poems that they respect. Um, suddenly now, like the value, like, like, that's the thing. Like once I release it, it kind of, it's kind of like releasing a wild animal, right? Um, uh, into the <laughs> world. And, and now, you know, it could like, somebody could catch it and do something with it. Right. Um, and, and, uh, I, I think that's very, very, uh, a useful way of thinking about it. Um, I, I remember even like when I was speaking to a, uh, developer that I know, a video game developer back in 2021 about NFTs. And I was saying how this could easily be something that is going to be like a part of gaming. And he couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that like, an NFT token does not need to have something like, oh, this NFT means that this is always going to be a sword and an in-game object with the following stats, right? He doesn't understand that in many ways it is a blank slate that any, like you could, you could have like, for example, the Mooncat NFTs on Ethereum. If you have a video game where you have like pets and you have like a function where it's like, all right, connect your wallet to uh, the Ethereum blockchain. We know that you have a moon cat in your wallet. Now this pet gets special kind of properties. You can get, define whatever property. There's no properties defined in the moon cats other than, you know, the fact that they are token on chain and there's metadata image where it looks like the way. And if you don't like the way it looks, you could redesign however you want for the purposes of your game, right? Um, I, I think this is a, a part that people kind of like really miss when they write these articles about like, you know, it's too complicated to put NFTs in gaming and they say, you know, and they use some of those like uh, arguments about, you know, stats, you know, stats can't be tied or like whatever. It's, 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 it's something that, and I think like in general, there's, there's not really a lot of education, even when within the crypto community as to how uh, all of this works. I don't know if you have any comments on anything that I just said, but. No. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, imagine let, let's, let's also, I, I would like to mention how this, um, this property has been used in kind of like maybe with some more real uh, implications as well, is that uh, what often happens sometimes is that uh, new applications will want to bring users to their application. They want to bring um, 
existing users and they would like to target perhaps maybe specific users. Sometimes they you could do, for example, because of the openness, um, let's take a dumb example. I'm making a new application and I want only like I want to incentivize like people with a lot of money or like a lot of a lot of crypto who who like blue chip NFTs. Like let's just take about like a a very capitalist example. I can say that like um if you are a holder of you know the monkeys, the the crypto punks, the whatever the other like big NFTs are, then you when you come into my application, you already start off with like maybe more uh more points or whatever for my game or for my app, whatever, you know? Um, so you can like use it as a way to also kind of encourage a certain audience. It might be interesting. So like with Breadchain, my project, you know, the way that we're kind of thinking about it is that'd be really, it's a really interesting way to, to identify the people who would be most aligned with our vision of building like post-capitalist applications on the blockchain. So, you know, we would want to find people who hold the NFTs that um, they would have purchased because they purchased that are related to like our writing that we've done before. Maybe we really like another community, like another smaller community that has like a lot of progressive values. Um, we could choose like one of their tokens as, you know, something that if you hold that token, um, then you will have more governance rights over like the way that we share our funds, for example. Um, so this, there's a lot of like, um, I think un untapped potential, you can use it for airdrops, sort of called. So like, um, you, you know, I, I have done before, like anybody who's done some on-chain activity where they supported my work, like I airdropped uh, a token before. Um, so I think this is like a really interesting implication as well when we think about, I don't know if you've heard much about exit to community. Um, which I yeah, I haven't heard that. I, I read a little bit about it in the book, but it's where, um, you know, as a business, usually you have two choices as a founder to like make money. Either you sell your business to another company or you IPO. And those are very like, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of trade-offs with doing either of those things. Uh, kind of third option that is proposed by um, Nathan Schneider, who's a, an academic who works a lot on worker cooperatives, is to sell your company to your community or to the people who are actually using your product. Um, so this was shown in the case of Uniswap, whenever Uniswap first started, or after they had started for a little bit, um, they created a governance token, the Uni token, uh, and that token was airdropped to people who had used the Uniswap uh, decentralized exchange before, right? So then all these people for having used their product, like made uh, potentially some money. They, they earned this token, they could have sold it or they could have kept it for voting power in that protocol. Um, so yeah, so I think that's, that's also like a really, uh, interesting use case there that it makes it more, you have, you have this legibility where you can make more interesting decisions than like, is the case through other types of mediums, even technological ones. Uh, Uniswap is a, is a funny example because I remember, uh, during the time of, uh, the airdrop, um, when it like picked up value in 2021 or whatever, uh, it, uh, it was presented as, well, look at the amount of stimulus money that you got from the government, right, uh, between two administrations versus the fact mm -hmm. that this uh, Uniswap airdrop, I think its peak was something like ten or $20,000. Um, you know, that in and of itself, like, uh, it, it kind of like, 
it, it's a right wing argument in some ways, but at the same time, it does sort of like indicate I, if you're like a rational state actor uh, and you see something like this, you should be thinking instead of like, uh, how do we uh, quash this? You should be thinking, well, maybe we are the ones that are being too stingy, right? Uh, maybe there is mm. such a thing as a, a private threat that's emerging from all this. And the only reason why a private threat could emerge is because you as a state, you're not holding up your end of the social contract, right? Which obviously, you know, looking back the last few years, right? Uh, so many violations of the social contract on, you know, by the state, um, you know, in, in some ways, like that's like another example of like a, it could be, you know, parasitic in some ways, but it's still, it's a private check on state power that to me the way that i interpret it is like you you as a, you have to get your act together government right you can't simply allow you know the uh outsourcing of everything uh i mean because everything is kind of like a trajectory towards privatization you know schooling is much more privatized in america now com compared to like even like um you know uh even like 10 years ago right with covid uh more people just like don't want to be in school and that's a problem right private schools should not you know exist at all like i, I think they should all be banned but um the state is not acting uh, 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 on its, like, you know, it has to hold up its end of the bargain. And if it doesn't, yeah. it's going to be a problem going forward. Um, second, Daryl, I wanted to ask you about a bread chain. Was there a specific uh, reason why you decided to use DAI versus something like USDC? Was it as simple as, uh, uh, like, I forget the rates, whether DAI versus uh, other um, coins yield more uh, interest uh, in AV, uh, or is it that USDC is uh, too centralized for your taste and you don't like the fact that there is a, a large uh, corporation behind it? Yeah, I'd say it's that reason for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. Is that DAI is a bit more decentralized. It's definitely not perfect, mm -hmm. but I think uh, it is more interesting. I think I, I, I would have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure. Um, I mean, for sure, with USDC, they will blacklist uh, certain addresses because it is more centralized, so they can freeze your USDC if you are considered a threat or an enemy. Um, and then I think in DAI, they don't in DAI they don't have that. Mm -hmm. um, so that was also like kind of the, those more kind of more ideological considerations were were in our mind when we chose DAI. Otherwise, Tether Tether I think gets the highest yield, but Tether mm -hmm. is like. I mean, potentially a, a ticking time bomb for a lot of people. So we don't want to use it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, I always hear how uh, nervous people are just kind of like holding it. They want to quickly get out like to, to something else. I, I do remember a reading, I'm not sure how true this was, that at least part of, uh, in terms of you saying it's not perfect, I think part of DAI uh, is kind of like in some ways, uh, I forget how uh, Circle has like some say uh over it but you know maybe i'm wrong yeah. yeah um a lot of their um collateral is usdc oh i see yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. part of it's part of the problem man but they're they have, they've laid out plans to kind of phase to to phase that out or to like prevent more usdc from entering the collateral mm -hmm. um maybe uh we could uh talk about uh privacy a little bit and start with this idea of a digital uh identities um in 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 crypto and maybe kind of like the the internet uh, in general going back a few decades uh so first of all um one uh, one major thing that i noticed is that when i first started following you on twitter you uh you're anonymous and now you're doxed uh and this is this is a, a common thing in crypto where people want to stay anonymous and in your case uh was it kind of like the common uh thing like all right i want to be anonymous because i don't want somebody to like target me and rob me 
or is there this kind of like uh dishonor with being a leftist associated with crypto um like what uh what exactly is, is your uh was your thinking behind all that and and how are you uh dealing with the public persona now yeah it's definitely definitely a bit of both of those i wouldn't say necessarily i was worried about getting robbed but mostly doxed uh or like being, yeah doxed to my like employers at the time mm -hmm. um i just didn't want to deal with like uh what issues could have arisen from that if like my boss knew that i was doing this i just didn't want to have that conversation with him um so that was a big thing it was also i think that when i started there was not really much anybody else doing this so it was like very uh it was a little bit of a lonely spot and it was a very like contradictory spot. It's a bit like you know i i didn't i don't want to be necessarily kind of uh um uh, what's the word like controversial these things is just like this is something that i've noticed that i thought was interesting that i think needs to be talked about more and nobody was doing it and i felt like i was in like a decent position to begin doing that just because i felt like i was pretty well educated on left-wing political issues and uh was working in the blockchain space so like i had a lot of opinions and i could not find a single place like that 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 said anything similar it was very difficult for me and i was like very frustrated and so it was like after being frustrated for like I think over a year that I was like, all right, fine, fuck it, I'll do it. Um, but like I said, I, I don't, I didn't want to be, have to deal with the issues with my work. And like, I could, I could imagine, like I was imagining that if I was fully public, it just would have been, it actually would have been more cringe <laughs> than it already was. Mm -hmm. um, just because, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I was working a normal job and things like that. So I, I, it could have been easy to paint me in a certain way that I didn't think like actually reflected like my values and, and who I am based on like the surface of like internet identity of what you can find online. Um, so I use this, so I, I was anonymous as a way to also like kind of build a following, build relationships and like trust between people that then like, once I did come out, when I was asked, I, I was told that I needed to come out of the anonymous closet whenever I wrote the book. Um, so then, uh, I already had kind of people who already knew me already because I was doing my podcast for so long, I already had so many connections. It wasn't like a big thing. I had already proven kind of like my, um, my ideals and my values, like before that happened. So I think that gave me, so then coming out of the closet at the anonymous closets was like, uh, you know, more relaxed than I think it otherwise would have been. It also happened after kind of like the peak of the mania of like this recent bubble, Whereas where was also the peak was also kind of like the peak of like people being pissed off if you were associated with crypto at all. So I think it protected me a little bit from from that happening mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about the general trajectory of what's been happening? Maybe not so much uh, in crypto natively, because uh, as you mentioned, it is a pseudo anonymous uh, anonymous most of the. Uh, chains and some of them are are uh, much uh, more anonymous with something like Monero, but uh, like outside of the 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 native chains themselves, you know, there's obviously a lot of front ends being built, right? There's businesses that are involved in some of these chains. Like if you're gonna be, for instance, like uh, on Solana and you want to get like that Saga Solana phone or whatever, um, you know, you're gonna have to contact them. You're gonna have to give them your address. You're gonna have to give them your email. Uh, some of these, um, like, like some of these uh, organizations, like, 
they say, okay, we want your email address, uh, phone number. We want your Twitter handle. We need you to to post the following five items on Twitter spaced five days apart. Uh, we need you to then post your Twitter uh, uh, links uh, that you just made over in our Discord. And it seems to be, uh, in some cases, much more uh, like the, the anti-privacy measures are like much stricter even mm -hmm. than like generic internet. Um, and mm -hmm. part of this has to do, I think, with the fact that uh, these organizations are just kind of very extractive, right? Like these are companies that want to milk as much out of you as they can. And maybe you get to, you know, keep some of your data, but overwhelmingly, they also start to keep, you know, so much of your data. Like if you use like some of those um, crypto walking apps, they know exactly <laughs> where do you go, where you go every single, you know, second. What's what's your normal route, you know, that you take? Yeah. Like, uh, so they could they could sell a lot, and they require a lot out of you. Um, like, what what do you think? Like, have you noticed that same kind of trend where they're just, you know, they're kind of recreating the same problems uh, of the corporate internet in general? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I think part of the reason why I'm interested in in the space is, be I mean is is both because of things that i find interesting in a positive way and also the things that i'm like very terrified of um so i think there is a potential for like some serious dystopian uh stuff with this technology which is why i feel it like useful for my time to like spend so much uh so much of it on this um but yeah i mean there is this kind of default uh thinking in the crypto space that if we financialize more that that somehow makes things better based on this like really silly idea of like perfect markets or that mm -hmm. markets like move towards perfection, which is like kind of a silly thing to, to think at this point. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's an issue. I think there is, there is a contradiction and like a tension between like having a space that is default kind of pseudo anonymous, but then also like wanting to build a business and needing to prove identity in order to like give things away. Um, there is this uh, tension that is like very hard to resolve at the same time. Like I think there's, especially between uh, building, like staying anonymous and building solidarity, I think are a bit opposed to each other. Like in order for us to have like relationships of solidarity, like I need to know about you. Like I need to know a bit about who you are, what is your life? Like, you cannot be an object to me. You cannot just be like an av an online avatar. I have to know something about you to build solidarity. So there's like a little bit of these, these contradictions in the crypto space. And, you know, there were these cypherpunk ideals um, more in the beginning that have, I think with the influx of venture capital have like washed out a lot of it. Um, so yeah, cause I mean, venture capital, I think is, uh, like one of the worst forms of investment you can like potentially take, uh, in most cases. And so they, re and they require, you know, they, they have very high expectations for return. And so it requires like very high levels of extraction. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, ironically, uh, you did mention how early on when you were, uh, anonymous, uh, it actually had the opposite effect, right? Where at the beginning it, it allowed you to build relationships, uh, in a way where, uh, you know, being public would not have, but then ultimately, you know, the yeah. doxing does occur. So, you know, um, and, and maybe we could I, like just, uh, oh, go ahead. I would just say it's, it's like not like a straightforward, yeah, yeah. like there's no straightforward answer to this problem, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, should we all be fully anonymous or should we all be like fully not? Like, I think there's no, there's no clear answer to that. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both, but yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, maybe we could briefly talk about some of the kind of like privacy networks like uh, Monero being, uh, I think, the most famous one. Uh, I remember when I first came across Monero, um, and even like, you know, maybe like a few years into it, thinking about it, I always thought, uh, I, I can't like I, I if I if I try to find a justification for why this should be legal, it's kind of hard to do it. Like I can't justify why this sh thing should at all be tolerated by any nation state. You know, uh, as a leftist, I'm not somebody that uh, doesn't believe in, in a state. I, I want there to be a strong but not a, not abusive state. I want a state that's actually fully accountable, but I still want there to be a powerful state. Uh, and if that's the case, like how can I? Uh, possibly allow, like, assuming I was, you know, in this uh, democratic state, if I was dictator for life, uh, how could I possibly <laughs> allow something like Monero? And uh, I, I, I found a resolution, actually, not through the thing about crypto, but I, I was uh, listening to some interview that um, the founder, I forget his name, of ProtonMail, which is an encrypted email service, and he said something like, look, uh, you know, if, if somebody uh, is targeted, right, by... Uh, you know, by by uh, like the FBI or whatever for potentially doing something illegal, and they have uh, an actual like warrant for this or that uh, material. Um, they then have to go directly to the person and say, "Okay, we have a warrant for this inf digital information that you have. We require you to show it to us." Uh, what Proton Mail does uh, inherently is um, assuming, of course, like they. They don't just like, you know, seize your computers and they're like unlocked or whatever. Uh, but assuming that's not the case, what, what something the Proton Mail does is it uh, basically puts the ball into the, the court of uh, the person using Proton Mail, right? Where now he has a choice. Okay, I could either comply with the law, right? Because uh, if there is a warrant, right, that, that is within the, under the auspices of the law, and I will hand over the information that's required of me. Or I can choose not to comply, and there's like penalties, could be jail, like whatever it might be. Um, and uh, I, I thought that was a very intelligent way of discussing it because it automatically, like, it obviously creates a layer of privacy that would not exist otherwise, right? Because Proton Mail, like, even if they're asked, if they're subpoenaed, they can't actually provide the content of uh, uh, your emails to anybody because they themselves don't know. That's the whole point of this. Um, so mm -hmm. it's up, it's up to you, you know, to make that decision for yourself. You have this responsibility. It's a more kind of radical responsibility and, but also it limits state power, right. In the way of like, cause you know, there's going to be spying, right. That's not under the auspices of warrants. You know, there's going to be spying that is, uh, illegitimate. If, if a Supreme court would hear this case, it would be overturned for instance, right. Like you, you can't, you can't do some of these things. So, um, you know, there's something and Monero is the same way, right. Monero does allow you to uh, comply uh, with the law, right? If somebody asks like, okay, so let's actually get a history of these transactions that are not garbled, you know, through the Monero chain and let's actually get, you know, historical reenactment of what happened. Uh, it's up to you. You know, you could either present this information uh, as requ required by law, or you could say, no, I'm going to take the penalties. And I think that's probably the best in between state where there is obviously a role for the state, right? The state is not just like, you know, uh, kicked out, but uh, natively there is now more privacy. There's more power. You know, uh, if 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 uh, I think America could have it its way, if it could like dream this up 50 years ago, it would prevent, you know, maybe the emergence of something like uh, Bitcoin wallets. But now that it exists, like you're going to have to default to more privacy, more, you know, person power uh, than not, right? So like, what do you, what do you think mm -hmm. about all this and, and privacy chains in general? 
Yeah. I mean, there, there are, like I mentioned in the book, like a lot of these things in the crypto world are kind of double-edged swords where of course they are things that can uh, be, that allow people to do things that are detrimental towards society perhaps, but also it can be used to protect yourself at the same time. I think there is like this general, like my feeling is that we can't like, I don't, I don't think like generally states are not, uh, they don't govern in the interest of the people kind of like flat out. Um, I think under capitalism, right. Most states are very much captured by private interests and private entities. Like in particular, uh, egregious example is the United States. Um, and how much, I mean, like bribery is just straight up legal. We just call it lobbying. Um, so I think there isn't, I think we shouldn't as at least if we're looking at this from the perspective of like a leftist, we shouldn't just like assume that if something is legal, then it's good. And if it's illegal, it's bad. And like, if we are like wanting privacy, that is like, like, like as leftists, I think if you are on the more radical side, at least like you are in many ways and in many points in history would be considered a criminal and you have to find ways to like protect yourself and your organization from like what those kind of like, um, what those damages could be. So, I mean, yeah, the, I think part of the, the intention with the creation of these more private chains is like to make cryptocurrencies more like the way that we use cash. Like, would we say as leftists that we should get rid of cash because cash makes up, you know, 95% of the black markets, which is true, which is where how people most of the time not, you know, pay their taxes is through cash. Um, is that, should we make that illegal or like prevent that from happening? Like when cash is also at the same time, a nationalized form of money in that it doesn't rely on the use of any private entity does not rely on the use of banks. Like cash is something that I can give. We can give between each other in person without anybody in between with nobody stopping us. Um, and we generally consider that to be a good thing. Um, and so us being able to do that in a digital sphere, is that so different? Um, I mean, yes, it is a little bit different and that I can send, you know, Monero to someone across the world and send it very far away perhaps. Um, but it has like a similar, similar intention. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a double-edged sword. I'm not really on the side of like thinking that states are somehow always in our best interest and that like, um, the left wing kind of position is like, oh, I love to pay taxes, you know, like, um, like I, I enjoy doing my, my W9s or W2s or whatever they're called, um, every year, but that, uh, you know, we need to be realistic about if you are going to be, you know, agitating real capitalist institutions, um, and very anti-democratic ones and very authoritarian ones. Like we just need to have, we need to think about kind of like the risks that we're taking on and what are the first things that they're going to do to us. The first thing that they can do, as we've seen in countless examples is prevent us access to our bank accounts. Mm -hmm. That is like a, the easiest thing that they can do. They just send a little request to the banks and, and they'll comply because they need to. So it is definitely not again, one of those things that's like, there is a clear morally correct answer. Um, but that right now I'm on the side of, uh, it being 
like me being okay that it exists at least and i'm not going to call for like you know the uh the banning of of these things mm -hmm. yeah that's a bit of a tension you mentioned this in your book between uh ideas of uh you know code is law versus social consensus because one of the important ways that we should also mention in terms of like what makes something a bitcoin valuable is uh you know if the, if you do have like this digital asset and uh it technically can't be seized like let's assume in, in the kind of like most extreme scenario um you never write down you know any of these seed phrases and you just memorize them right and then you tell somebody else that you trust okay here's a seed phrase i need you to memorize for it for me every day and you're going to practice it every single day so that you don't forget it and i don't forget it and if one of us is the weak link um you know we could still have access to these funds uh in that case uh it would be very difficult for you know the state to uh seize it they could do some kind of blacklist but like ultimately i i think you could probably get around a, a blacklist you know maybe escape into um you know a privacy chain or whatnot and uh, uh, work, work your way out. Cause again, like if you're a, a leftist and you believe that, uh, the state isn't perfect, right. In terms of like representing your interests, um, you're going to have to allow some room there for, uh, something that is like somewhat outside of the auspices of, uh, of, um, the, uh, of the state, right. It, it's going to be kind of like, you know, parallel to it, maybe not necessarily in a hundred percent, maybe like, like not antithetical to it, but, um, you know, if anything, like long term, it could be something that has very much a supporting role for the state, right? Uh, gives the state more credibility because ironically, like if the state would have like come out early on very hard, like we're going to flash Bitcoin. Well, now that's a problem because suddenly Bitcoin has value by virtue of the fact that you just said this is so dangerous for anybody to have. If people could still get it, now we have the value because you're quashing it. That would also erode the credibility of the state, right? Like, what exactly are they so scared of? Why are they preventing us from, you know, trying to have any of this? Why can't you just regulate it as opposed to outright ban it? Maybe this thing really is dangerous, but not in the way that they say. Um, but yeah, there's this kind of conflict, right, between code is law and social consensus. And social consensus is like it's the law, right? Social consensus could be um, e like even like a mob mentality, uh, you mentioned, for instance, the 2016 Ethereum hack, which uh, it violated the, the precept of uh, a code as law, right? We rolled back the, the blockchain uh, because, you know, like when suddenly it's like when people are involved, they could they could lose a lot of their money. Uh, this is going to be a big problem for them. Nobody wants to lose their money, even if it's like a hack that, you know, uh, the DAO is not responsible for, like whatever. Uh, they don't want to lose their money. And for, you know, Ethereum to uh, continue existing, you're going to have to get some of this back. That's the social consensus right. layer, right? Also That's fourteen percent of like the total yeah, Ethereum exactly. supply at that time. I think something like that. To yeah, one so person. They, so, so they come together and they essentially, uh, you know, do this hard fork. Um, and uh, and like you, you still have like some holdouts. Like if you look at crypto Twitter, uh, people that are you know like Bitcoin maximalists or or types that really don't want any changes, even those that are just kind of like. You know, it, it gets to the point of uh, it's such zealotry that it starts to like even make very little sense from the standpoint of if you're a big Bitcoin maximalist and you want this thing to succeed, why are you against ordinals if ordinals are like the thing that's been <laughs> discovered recently 
that uh, manages manages to solve like the Bitcoin security dilemma of well, are we really going to be able to pay you know to pay for its security because really not much is happening on chain, whereas like Ethereum you know has a lot more legroom in that way because it's it's a thing that's meant to be used in some way. Um, so I mean, like, what what are your thoughts on these kinds of uh, conflicts in the community, social consensus versus code is law? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting how my read of the situation back then what happened is kind of like i mean early crypto at, at least at that point in like 2016 when the dow hack was happening it was very very libertarian um and by libertarian i mean like a more right-leaning libertarian for the most part um and the the more hardcore libertarians were on the code is law side and then the i would say that the nuanced libertarians were on the social consensus side um, and so what ended up happening, the DAO hack happened, people got mad about the fork or about the, about the, uh, the rollback. And then they forked, they created Ethereum classic. It like pushed, it moved away. All of the hardcore libertarians went to Ethereum classic. And then Ethereum was able to produce kind of a, a slightly different, slightly more progressive, although not progressive enough, I would say, uh, culture within their crypto community as compared to, to Bitcoin. Um, whereas Bitcoin really, really stayed way more rigid. And that became like the, that was, it was like not a, it was not a bug. It was a feature, you know, um, the fact that you cannot change the Bitcoin code means that it's always going to stay the same. And that's what we want. It's kind of like, there's a very like religious aspect to, uh, in Bitcoin maximalism that I think in Ethereum is, uh, is a bit less and there is more, I think that's why you have seen. I mean, we've seen the past few years, Ethereum has had way more innovation, uh, more interesting applications and more more wide ranging use of applications than Bitcoin has um, the past few years. Yeah, I didn't realize that there was uh, a substantial enough contingent of people that actually went over to Ethereum Classic. But it's kind of funny to view Ethereum Classic as uh the domain of like um crypto uh darwin awards right everybody that has <laughs> you know uh, untenable ideologies that they've sort of thought themselves into right into this like uh, uh box uh, okay well you could you could have you could have your ghost chain um you know and uh, uh have yeah. fun with it um but just to say like i think that it shows kind of how each in many ways like each chain the way that it uh that it is constituted or like what its features are it attracts different politics mm -hmm. or creates different politics so you can see like uh ethereum is much more pluralistic than bitcoin is bitcoin is quite rigid and there's only like you know a couple of people with nuanced opinions when you go into mm -hmm. like the bitcoin world um whereas ethereum it's like there are many different there are many more camps i would say although and many of them are just like kind of either they want different technical changes or they want certain, they have certain philosophical beliefs, um, but there's much more diversity there. And then with like Ethereum Classic, you had like very hardcore libertarianism, uh, but also Ethereum smart contract interested and it kind of flopped. Um, so in, in, in like, I think it's, it's a bit maybe facetious to say, but in some ways you can kind of see how different politics play out economically on each chain. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I think you could like tell, like, I mean, if you just go right now, when you look at the uh, like uh, Ethereum people versus Bitcoin people um, uh, on, on Twitter, uh, the kinds of personalities, like all, all the kind of like um, 
uh, I don't know if anybody's been really canceled in crypto, but if anything is cancelable, like it would be mostly on the Bitcoin chain because of uh, you know everything from like total right wing lunacy about uh, immigration, uh, uh, you know outright racism to the point of using slurs, that kind of like extreme stuff that that, that tends to congregate a lot more on stuff like Bitcoin, whereas. Um, you know, I'm not sure how representative somebody like Vitalik Buterin is uh, of uh, Ethereum in and of itself, but uh, and I, you know, I, I have never really been able to truly pin down his politics, and I don't think he actually like has ever come out and said like, "Oh, I'm a socialist or I'm this, I'm that." Uh, he probably mm -hmm. is a little bit too, um, you know, he, he's kind of a little bit all over, all over the place to, to say that, but it wouldn't surprise me that if all said. It, when it's all said and done, that he would be probably a lot closer to our politics than he would ever be to something like, you know, the politics of, um, I also noticed that he followed you on, on uh, uh, Twitter, right? So uh, whenever he does yeah. release articles, they tend to be, you know, like his imagination of like what uh, crypto can do or perhaps should do is much more, you know, it's much more diverse. It has uh, many more moving parts than something like, you know, digital scarcity. We need to get back on the gold standard. And guess what? Bitcoin is yeah. just a better gold. Max Kaiser so, type of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of funny. Like, you know, on the other end, uh, it, it is kind of interesting when you look at how, you know, Bitcoin was introduced and even to, to this day now, uh, those on the, um, you know, those are like right libertarian types who maybe like uh, are writing for the Von Mises Institute or whatnot. Many of them actually were, and maybe still are against Bitcoin which is uh, uh which is like i think there's a lot of motivated raising they probably own a lot of gold you know and they recognize <laughs> that bitcoin it is it yeah, is yeah. like whether or not you like it it is starting to compete with gold i think it's uh probably going to at some point overtake uh the value of gold and uh you know it's it shows that you know so much of what we consider to be true beliefs or like ideology that's based on reason it, it is just psychological you know in nature it is motivated reasoning because I, I i've never i've never quite understood why gold bugs would be so reluctant to embrace bitcoin unless they fear right for their own financial stake so um mm -hmm. you know that, that's a funny like little emergence um but uh maybe actually uh we should uh because i I'd normally uh split these into uh, a show and an after show uh and the patrons get the after show uh, uh -huh. so if you guys want to see the rest of this conversation uh, i want to discuss uh, uh maybe some things that uh, you might not want to make so public such as uh maybe we could uh, uh, uh rag on some uh, uh crypto personalities i want to talk about some more specific protocols we have other uh, questions uh, in your book, such as like, I want to talk about, you know, uh, uh, left wing versus right wing ideology when it comes to things like personal responsibility and how uh, um, uh, cryptocurrency tends to play into that and a bunch of other stuff. If you guys want to see the topics, you would find them under the show notes, under the B side uh, topics, uh, both in the pinned comment as well as under the video description. And you could get that either through patreon.com slash automachination or in the very near future, you could uh, join the YouTube uh, membership program and you could get that conversation as well. So we are transitioning to the patron show now.